we need to figure out who you are today, not who someone who was an authority figure 10 years ago believed you to be. So let's unpack all that. Let's evaluate it for validity. Let's reform it. And, and let's see if we can expand your field of possibility. Welcome to the Gig Boss Podcast, where musicians go to learn how to navigate the new music economy. My name's Adam Meckler, and it's my mission to get you the tools to have a thriving career in music. And to that end, I have smooth jazz and funk saxophone master Steve Cole on the show today. Not only does Steve have a decorated career as a top-tier performer with an album still riding the tops of the Billboard Smooth Jazz Charts, he's also a professor who specializes in the business of music. And he's got a killer Spotify presence with a handful of songs that have streams in the millions. And I just had the distinct pleasure of performing two nights at the Dakota in Minneapolis with Steve and his killer band. Steve, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me, man. Awesome to be here, dude. All right. So, hey, uh, you broke onto the scene in 1998. I've been listening to Stay A While. It's so funky, man. It's such a great record. It had multiple number one hits and sort of catapulted your career. Can you talk a bit about how that record came about? Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> that that record was uh, many years in the making, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Your first record you work on your whole life, right? Right. But I had been I had been touring around with a, a couple of artists that, have, that were already signed to Atlantic Records. The first was a guy named Bob Mamet and this was kind of in the early 90s and then I met Brian Culbertson we all lived in Chicago at the time was touring with him and got to know a bunch of people through that relationship mm-hmm. um Brian actually you know was was cool enough to say hey you know what you should think about doing your own thing and you know it, he helped me do that you know we wrote a bunch of music together we did we did one one demo together and and it kind of got let, let's just say that not the most enthusiastic uh, <laughs> uh, response. Sure. And, you know, we kept kind of at it. I kept touring with him and, and he kept on helping me kind of develop my thing. You know, it's interesting. I, I can I can narrow it down to like one song, which is actually on the Stay A While record. It's called Where the Night Begins. We wrote that together. And it just so happened that uh, George Knopfel, who is the uh, head of A&R for the kind of contemporary jazz area at Atlantic Records, was in town. We had dinner with him and played him this track, and he kind of looked across the table. He's like, "Yeah, man, I think that's uh, I think that's the move. I think you're ready." Awesome. So it was years. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, totally. It, it wasn't. It wasn't just like, "Hey, man, you know, I've got you know whatever you know million streams on Spotify. Sign, sign me." No, it was. It was. It was a long time. But yeah, that's how it all started, man. Cool. Yeah. yeah so I was gonna ask if like how much you were grinding before that first record came out or if you had released other records and they just like you pushed them away or if that was really like the first big one that was the first the first one i was i was more of just like a you know i was playing clubs i was playing jobbing dates doing a lot of sessions uh, the session scene in chicago was pretty pretty vibrant in, in in that time period so i was just i was just grinding it out man as a as a as a side man as a session guy and then started touring and, and kind of just branched off from there. What was the touring like once the record came out and you started getting some traction? How hard did you go touring? Well, you know, as hard as we possibly could. I mean, here's the thing, you know, I got signed in 1998, which was just like a couple of years before the Napster apocalypse, right? Right. And and the record industry was at its highest level of revenue. So it was like a dream come true mm. for like, you know, five minutes. Um, <laughs> had a lot of support from Atlantic Records. The, the album was a priority. I had great relationships with, with the people there, the 
people who are kind of you know, handling marketing and promotion and publicity. I, I really, really, you know, had had very, very, very close friendships with them. Hmm. And so, yeah, we we were just, you know, we were rolling pretty hard as 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 much as we possibly could. Some of the gigs were fantastic. You know, we one of the first gigs was the you know back in the day the Goodwill Games in Battery Park. I played like right before Trisha Yearwood. Wow. It was like this weird eclectic thing. And then, but then the next day was at like the Taste of Cleveland. Yeah, and it, and it and it rained. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, so we're like covering up gear. I mean, it was like all over the place. But you know, really a fabulous few years of very very heavy touring. Um, yeah. really really kind of you know set things off. So you you had that great relationship with Atlantic what happened over the course of 20 years like how did your relationship with major labels change now that the economy and the the way things work in the music business is so different I'm a bit unique in in that especially in this day and age is that I I still am affiliated with record labels and Mm -hmm. I have been throughout my entire career I started out with Atlantic Records then kind of got traded to Warner Brothers and then I actually was you know dropped from Warner Brothers around the Time Warner AOL merger Hmm. and I was on I was on the beach for a minute you know wondering what my next move was and it's it's funny enough I, I I got into higher education and right when I accepted a position as a professor in music industry at Columbia College in Chicago, I got another record deal. Huh. <laughs> and this time it was with uh, first Narada, which was then acquired by EMI and was folded into Blue Note. So I made a couple oh, wow. of records for Blue Note. Cool. Yeah. And then I ended up going with a, an independent label that was kind of aggressively signing a lot of the refu- refugees from major labels. Hmm. Um, and that's Mac Avenue. Oh, yeah. Um, I know Mac Avenue. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been with Mac Avenue for like, 12 or 13 years they're f- absolutely fantastic um it's funny because there were some people I, I work with at mac avenue that i used to work with at warner brothers okay <laughs> right yeah that's interesting um, so yeah it's been it's been a really great experience there do you do any kind of I know some of the record labels i work with there's like a community of artists there's a slack channel where like artists are like this worked this didn't this you know this venue has been responding to my emails this venue hasn't rope it up records is a record label i work with out of philadelphia does sure. mac avenue i know like uh sean jones has released uh, records on mac avenue great trumpet mm-hmm. player tia fuller yeah. it, yep. ha- have have you interfaced with any other artists on the label in any kind of significant way you know what some of the artists on the label i i knew before you know notwithstanding our affiliation with the label um, what you're talking about is 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 would be phenomenal. Yeah, <laughs> um, I'm not aware of any any uh, process in place for doing that. But uh, note to self. Yeah, right. <laughs> that, that would that would be amazing to just be able to you know kind of you know jump on a platform and say hey you know whatever hey Christian McBride how are you <laughs> Yeah, totally man. Like why isn't that a thing you know? <laughs> and he would be like I'm sorry and you are <laughs> <laughs> get out of here man. Yeah, so I, I remember hearing a thing, uh, I don't remember exactly how it went, but Questlove was talking about when they first got signed, and he was like, we gotta, he told the label, you gotta also go sign this person, this person, this person, this person, and this person, so that our sound can be defined, you know what I mean? So the label yeah. became like a, a place you could point to and go, anybody that plays like The Roots, or has that kind of like neo-soul vibe, it's like they're here at this label, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. for that kind of like creating community thing, I think is really interesting for... Uh, for labels, I know a lot of labels don't do it. Ropeadope does a good job of it, but you know, whatever. It's a smaller, super, super indie. You know, yeah. That no, I think that's a, a phenomenal idea. I think it would it would it would help labels kind of form stronger value propositions around what they're doing and 
and, and how they're serving their artists. I yeah. mean, I think a lot of labels do a, fen- a phenomenal job of, 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 of doing that. But I think more and more today, community is becoming so critical, especially kind of in the, in the creative sector, that having that hub would be just invaluable. Yeah, cool. Listening to your records and then getting to like play a live show with you, is there a way that you approach playing like your saxophone on records versus when you're live and and why are those two things different if they are? I can't say that I consciously think about a different approach to saxophone playing mm. live and in the studio. That said, I think I, there's a discernible difference, <laughs> you know. You know, in the studio, it's much more cerebral, I'm focusing on, on a number of different things. First of all, when I'm playing, when I'm recording, the experience of playing that song is pretty new, mm-hmm. you know. And so not only are, am I kind of, you know, trying to you know, not screw up um, <laughs> and, and really focus on, you know, making a, a great performance, but I'm also kind of exploring a bit about, like, you know, all right, so you know this is kind of the melody as I envisioned it when I wrote it, but now I'm actually playing it on my instrument, and I have to translate that idea that was in my head into the medium of this instrument. Right. And every instrument, you know, has its thing, you know, and some things you hear in your head don't really translate a hundred percent to to your instrument. No doubt right? about it. Yep. <laughs> um, so there's a lot of that going on live. It's man, it's 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 almost like I lose myself in the in the moment live because there's so much energy and it's so much fun and I'm surrounded by humans. Yep. Uh, you know, very very creative and amazing human beings playing instruments. And I think it's just like a more powerful, more just kind of like from the hip. You know, just you know, let's let's go, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you mentioned when we were hanging, you mentioned uh, like being on tour and having kind of a broken down band that's a little smaller and playing to tracks versus having like the full, like we did in Minneapolis where we had like yeah. most of the pieces or all the pieces of, on the record. You know, what's that experience like playing to a track versus playing? I, I think I know, but like, what's, you know, it's like, <laughs> you know what, man, uh, for, for a while it was very much just a necessity. Yeah. Um, you know, bring, you know, when I, when, so here's an example of how the business has changed a bit. When I started out touring, um, not only did I have a full band with a couple of keyboard players and I also had background vocalists. I had three background singers yeah, nice. and, and, a, and a tour manager. There were nine of us rolling together. Awesome. Um, you know, nine airfares, nine salaries, nine per diems. Yep. Uh, you know, and, 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 and many times, you know, a bar tab of, <laughs> of 10 <Yeah>. people, <laughs> including myself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, the, the, the economics of touring got a little bit tighter and, you know, sometimes you can't afford to bring out so many, so many people. It's just, it, it's cost prohibitive. So yep. yeah, playing with a track became a fact of life. I absolutely hate it. It's not like it spoiled the entire experience for me, but there's just this freedom that's just simply not there with that track. You're really, really confined. Now, I know that some people have been really amazing with like putting tracks in Ableton and being able to trigger and loop. That's a whole skill set that, you know, I would I would love to develop, but I still in performance. It's just another thing to uh, to think about. Yeah. Yeah. Having actual an actual person on the road who does that that might not be a bad idea (laughs) right i'd like to talk a little bit about your music 
uh, like your writing and your influence yeah. uh, from being from Chicago. You talked a little bit about Curtis Mayfield when we were on stage. I've been, you know, it's like I, pl- I played with this band that did a tune that was inspired by, by Curtis many years ago, and I never went and checked out Curtis Mayfield. It was like that wasn't a thing that I had checked out. And so in the la- just in the last three months since like listening to your music and hearing you talk on stage, I've been listening to Superfly and a couple other things. And I- I'm curious like how the music of Chicago, like Chicago style, funk, soul, blues, worked its way into your music and how that's different than, say, somebody that was making like smooth jazz kind of stuff out of a different city. Right. So I the, hear the cool it, thing, you know, I can hear the yeah, difference. No, there's, it's, it's, it's palpable. I mean, Chicago is such an amazing city in that, <laughs> well, first of all, a lot of the same musicians are playing a lot of the same music. So like if you're in a, if you're in kind of a, a scene with different players, they might be playing the blues clubs on Wednesday, jazz clubs on Thursday, funk and R&B and soul, you know, other days, yep. you know, gospel gigs. And I found myself kind of welcomed into this community of musicians and I, I got to experience and play and learn about so many different styles of music mm. uh, in so many different venues and, and genres. And it, and it just became this big like paella, <laughs> this, this big stew, you know? Yep. And it, it, it was just an, an inspiring place to, to grow as a musician. And so just kind of naturally, and I also studied classical music. I mean, I came up formally studying classical music. Right. So it, it was all there. And, you know, the cool thing about that is there's so much source material there for you to kind of find your own voice. Like, like how do I want to combine these things in a unique way that's mine? You know, right. of course, after many, many years of imitation. <laughs> Right. Yeah, right, right. I was just l- looking at that Clark Terry quote uh, where he says, imitation, assimilation, innovation, in that order, right? right? Something mm-hmm. like that. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just all there, man. It was like all the ingredients, and I got to experience it all. I got to learn from some incredible musicians. Um, and, and it was just such a welcoming environment. You cool, know? cool. Uh, I, w- I want to talk a little bit about CDs. I, I, CDs has been something that's been talked about lately in my social circles where people are going like should we we're at this impasse right where it's like if you're going to do publicity maybe it's like yes for sure print some cds because because people who do radio people who maybe work with with jazz maybe trend a little bit older and so they're still using cds or there are record labels that i work with that have like a network of people that sell cds still it's low it's low you know we're talking like in the hundreds but it's like people are still buying cds where where do you find yourself as an artist when you're releasing like you just had this new album what did you do for digital versus physical in and and like how did those numbers go maybe even compared to what you did in like 98 with stay yeah i mean you know Let's face it, you know, in 98, people were buying CDs. Yeah. And they were buying a, a, a ton of them. You know, these days, we still make CDs. You know, my label still puts out CDs because most of m- most of where I sell them is at, are, are at shows. People still want them. They want to stand in line. They want you to sign something. They want to take something home. Yeah. I actually think that CDs are, are, are having a little bit of an uptick in terms of sales as of late. But I think that, you know, and, and you know, a lot of a lot of artists I know are now really, really kind of focused on on making sure they have violent violent vinyl available right streaming and digital is still probably you know 90 percent of of where the focus lies building engagement building profile finding ways to to connect through the mediums that 
people, you know, discover music, which right. is you know streaming today. Yep. But still, there's that physical aspect that 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 kind of piece of collateral that people can can hold, can can you know use as something to remember an experience by. And also, you know, my audience tends to be a little bit on the older, you know, kind of spectrum of the demographic. And, you know, people still dig their CD collections, man. They, they, right. they like to take them home, put them in their car, you know, on the way home, you know, and, and, and you know, rock out. So Yeah. And there's really, like, you know, I grew up with, like, one foot in saving money to buy the CD you want and one foot in, like, I remember being upstairs at my house and watching my brother download all this music on Napster on our on our family computer and I was going like how are you getting all this music what's going on like I remember the feeling of that and yeah. being excited and being like wow all this music is accessible and not really understanding the implications of of that man I don't even know where I was going with this but you know are you focusing on streaming now like how are you handling the digital space yeah, and I'm, I'm you know my, a lot of my focus is on social media and, and building engagement um, with fans and you know find, you know growing my uh, you know my my engagement with like not yet fans yeah um, and 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 getting impressions on streaming you know I I don't do a whole lot of like hey go and buy my CD. Even though, of course, you know, you buy a CD and there's like more money in it than yeah. there is in a stream. Yeah. Yep. Um, but but let's face it. I mean, when you when you look at the percentage of revenue that the industry derives from streaming versus physical, it's 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 a pretty it's a pretty 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 easy prioritization. Yeah. And I remember what I was going to say liner notes, man, liner notes. I would sit and read every single record. I'd read all the liner notes, figure out who's playing on the record, yep. read the, yep. you know, it's like, this was a great, and it's like, we've got some digital versions of that now, but it's really not, it's really not fully integrated yet in the way that it was, you know? Yeah. I mean, just recently I was, I was listening to a track uh, by an artist and I wanted to know who produced it because I was just like, wow, this is killing. I, I, I might've spent, I, I probably spent a half hour trying to figure it out, couldn't find it. That was really frustrating. Yeah. So I, I, I feel you on that. Yeah. So you're in higher education. You said you started at Columbia. Now you're in Minneapolis. Where are you at again? St. Thomas? Is that uh, University of St. Thomas. Yeah. University of St. Thomas. So Biden just announced this 10K forgiveness thing, 20 some K if you have Pell Grants. I'm, I'm learning about it. I've got $130,000 in student loans. I have two music degrees. I have sort of reached like the top position you can reach at a university as a jazz person, and mm -hmm. I still can't really pay my student loans off. Like I still don't make enough money to pay my student loans off. So my question to you is, is it irresponsible for higher education to be giving out music degrees, just since it's topical? Yes, <laughs> it's a good question. So I, I think that it's... That's that's a good question. Is it irresponsible? Let me let me approach it from from this perspective. A responsible music degree, in my view, would need to contemplate much more than what a traditional music degree has, you know, contemplated in the past. Yeah, I think that musicians today have an incredible opportunity in a creator economy that's growing, you know, as fast as it is. I mean, it's not hard to identify even players that we know who are really, really uh, uh, um, adding a, a, a significant amount of income to, to their portfolio yep. by, you know, offering, doing, you know, creating. 
right? Mm -hmm. So, of course, the craft is key, right? Yeah. But also, I mean, if you're not equally addressing where the professional opportunities are, how to be entrepreneurial, how to understand audience and engage with them in a in a in a, in a meaningful way. Yep. And I'm not just talking about social media strategy. I'm talking about like human-centered design, mm -hmm. building empathy, understanding, you know, the deeper kind of levels of your audience's needs. Right. Also understanding strategy and marketing and differentiation and also agility. Mm. And, you know, when when the world changes around you, are you prepared to change with it? Right. Or are you going to be paralyzed by the fear that comes with change? So, hmm. you know, if a music program is not addressing in a very significant way the industry around the art, and I'm not just talking about dabbling in it. I'm not talking about, hey, well, we have a class. No, absolutely not. Yeah. There needs to be a significant part of the curriculum that addresses this because... There are probably three schools in the world where you can go to, maybe not in the world, Europe's a little bit different with music, and but, yep. you know, yeah, you go to Juilliard, you know, you're probably going to be a badass. Mm -hmm. you're, you're probably going to find that, you know, that, that one-tenth of one percent of the jobs in, in the world that you can do just by doing your thing. Yeah. Or Curtis, or you know what I'm saying, right? Yep, yep. For the rest of us mortals... <laughs> uh, you know, we 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 need to be uh, uh, fortified in in this aspect of 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 the world and the context in which uh, music and creativity lives, uh, or else we're not doing this. So, to go back to your question, if that's not happening, then yeah, I think it's irresponsible to be offering a music degree. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. If that's not happening, if it is, you know, double down create great entrepreneurs who great artist entrepreneurs right right storytelling i feel like is such a big part of that aspect you sort of touched on that a little bit but man i've been thinking a lot about storytelling and releasing records and i'm trying to get better at that myself as i so like i've got another record coming out soon that's where i'm having producers sample my big band music and turn it into new songs like beats oh, and stuff cool. and then yeah. i'm doing collaborations with a bunch of different artists and, the, and like i wanted to come up with an idea that is that I can say that quickly, that I can just be like, this is what the project is, and everybody can go, oh, cool, that's interesting. You know what I mean? It's like yep. the story behind the thing is such an important aspect of just being able to, like you, you're going to work with a publicist, so the publicist needs a story to tell, you know? Absolutely, yeah. Um, cool. So what are you telling your students that are going out into the world to make a career in music? Are you saying, like, there's all these various different avenues to make uh, a living, or you have to be... Uh, you have to have your fingers in a lot of different income streams that they come in. Like, I'm, I'm assuming some of them will become artists. Some of them will probably be industry people. Yeah. One of the things that I'm a big fan of is, is doing experiments early and often. A lot of students come to school and they don't know what they want to do, man. They have this one idea, right? Yeah. Like, I want to be a producer. I want to own a label. I want to work for a festival promoter. I want to be, you know, whatever, a singer, whatever, singer, songwriter, whatever you want to do. And that's great. You know, you got to you got to you got to get there somehow. Mm -hmm. You know, something needs, you know, something creative needs to be driving you. Right. The one thing that I make sure that I do and I, I use some, uh, you know, actual theory, some actual, you know, social science methods to expand my students idea 
about what's possible for them. Yeah. The one thing that I know for sure is that a lot of students come to college their first year and their head is filled with all of the assumptions that they have formed uncritically throughout their entire lives about where they begin and where they end. Hmm. Right. And one of the big things that I do is just like, Hey, you're on a, you're here now and we need to figure out who you are today. Not who someone who was an authority figure 10 years ago believed you to be. And right. so you just bought into that. Right. Yep. So let's unpack all that. Let's evaluate it for validity. Let's reform it. And, and let's see if we can expand your, your, your field of possibility. Hmm. That's one of the first things that's, that's so critical. Yeah. And then you see, you know, people's eyes light up like, you know, and, and again, stories. I have tons of stories about who I, who I thought I was yep. and who I actually became. Um, and if I would have listened to those assumptions, you know, from back in the day, I, I wouldn't have done, you know, 90% of the things that I've, I've done. Mm -hmm. The other thing that, you know, I do is I, you know, really, we, we start talking about professional development literally from day one. And, you know, we do have a class that happens like freshman year. It's called Entrepreneurial Careers in Music and Professional Practice. Cool. And part of it really is to just kind of start understanding goals, start understanding processes, start understanding, you know, assumptions and possibilities, but then also like, how can we test different things? How can you go and do something and see if you actually like doing it? Hmm. Not like get a job, not like get an internship, but like put something out in the world and, and, and check it out. Right. And, and, and experience what it means to whatever you know that that thing is and we do it a lot because the more you experiment and the more that you 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 try and test first of all the more comfortable you get with the process and mm. two you you explore and you discover so much more in in a much uh more truncated you know uh period of time yeah um so you know it starts there and then of course you know building into i'm a big proponent of design thinking and applying that to creativity and the creative economy, hmm. um, really starting with the people and not the problem, right? Um, and not starting with the solution, but starting with questions, yeah. right? I mean, we design experiences. That's our job as creatives. We, whatever you do, whether you're a touring artist or whether you're, you know, uh, you know, a festival promoter, you're creating experiences, yep. And you're creating experiences for people. Yeah, I think a lot so, of people don't think that way. A lot of artists don't think that way. They're just like, I'm just going to make the music I make, and if you like it, cool, and if not, then fuck you or whatever. And it's like, well, actually, like we're also people are paying to come see us and to have an experience to to be entertained, right? It's yeah. like, what are we doing to fulfill that? And, I, and, I, and I'm not a proponent of just simply, you know, tailoring your music and your craft to whatever you know market research you do. Yeah. It's more about kind of like how can you bring your music and your creativity and your voice to as many people as you possibly can by knowing more about how your music connects with those people who are already following you. Hmm. What does your music mean to them? Uh, and how can you tell that story in a more compelling way? Yeah. And create experiences around what you do that are articulated with what you learn from your audience right so are you using any kinds of tools that help with that i mean i've been hearing about bands in town recently and how it's a great resource for artists and chart metric i had a guy mm -hmm. on who works for chart metric recently uh which kind of tracks all your various different uh interaction with fans throughout social pro and uh, streaming platforms are you personally using any tools like that 
Yeah, I use. I'm a big fan of Chartmetric, and oh, cool. we use that at University of Saint Thomas a lot because I think there's a there's an incredible amount of insight to be gained uh, from from a dashboard that has so many different data points that you can kind of see trends. And I love the feature where you can just like go on your dashboard and you can see all these different metrics from all these different social media platforms and streaming platforms. And everything is articulated. You move the needle on one thing and you see a trend and you see what's going on with the entire panel, oh. which is really cool. So I use that um, for insights. I, I use all of the analytics that I possibly can from any platform that I'm on. So whether it's Pandora, you know, and, and Next Big Sound and Spotify analytics, Amazon analytics, yep. Apple music artists. The one thing that's confusing is that a lot of them tell a very different story, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you, you go and you look at your numbers on Apple Music and you go and look at your audience on Spotify and you may see some very conflicting stories in the data and trying to understand, well, all right, who are we talking to in going deeper into like, well, who's an Apple Music listener and who's a Spotify listener and you know, what's the profile there? Yeah. So it's, it's, it gets a bit, a, a bit complicated. I'm actually encouraging my students at St. Thomas to minor in analytics if they feel like that's something that they connect with. Wow. That makes a lot um, of sense. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Because we're, and not, we're the ones are, dealing with it, right? It's not record labels anymore. It's like we're indie artists dealing with it. Right. Right. So understanding really how to understand data, how to, how to tell stories with data, how to visualize data so it starts to make sense. Yep. Um, not only is it good for your own practice to understand what's going on with your fan base, but it's also really critical if you want to engage with another area of the industry. Like you want to get a gig, right? Yep. You go to a you go to a promoter and you're like you, you, with with no data about you, mm -hmm. and you know just your good looks, and it's it's not going to happen. But if you actually can tell a story and you have some metrics to back it up, even if it's not astronomically awesome, if you can show a trend, if you can show growth, yep. And understanding, and also the fact that you're a strategic partner, as opposed to just somebody looking for a gig. Yep. You know, you might have better luck. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. So that's, that's so great. What What are you up to now, creatively? What do you have going on? Right now, I'm actually really trying to level up the kind of uh, online engagement. I, I was taking a break from the road. I mean, COVID was obviously kind of a forced hiatus. Yep. <laughs> but I actually, you know, after touring for like 30 years, was it 30? Holy crap. Maybe it's 25. Maybe I'm not that old. Yeah. Um, and, and really kind of just, it just so much a part of my everyday. Just, you know, I know that I'm going to be on a plane this week, no matter what. Right. Felt great to be home, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? So I extended that little vacation for a while, sure. uh, very purposefully. Anyway, really trying to kind of level up the online engagement and create more content because it's it's just kind of something I really enjoy doing. Yep. But also, you know, starting to plan to, you know, ease back into, you know, live music um, yeah. and playing gigs without tracks. <laughs> yes. So Smoke and Mirrors is out, the new record. Uh, we're going to link Steve Cole's music in the description of the podcast check out what steve is doing it's killer uh dude this was awesome thank you so much no, for talking my, to me my pleasure i'm flattered to be asked to be on your uh on your podcast man. all right man cool we did it 
Thanks so much for listening to my conversation with Steve Cole. If you want to get deeper into this thing, you can jump over to the Gig Boss Podcast Facebook group. Uh, We discuss all the topics that we encounter on the podcast. We also have an app called Gig Boss. It's an organizational tool for musicians, for band leaders. You can create groups, you can create events, you can track all your events in a chronological scrolling feed of gigs. You can click on a gig and see all the details. Click on the address to pull up Uber or Lyft or your native Maps app on your phone and a whole bunch of other new stuff is coming. The Gig Boss app is free on iOS and Android. We also have a deal going on with Ari's Take Academy where if you take one of their courses, you can get 10% off by putting in the code GIGBOSS, G-I-G-B-O-S-S. They offer courses on sync licensing, on running ads for your music, and all kinds of other useful stuff. All that stuff is in the description. Thank you so much for listening. It really means a lot. I can tell that we're growing. I can tell that new people are finding us. I appreciate you being here.